Let's open up now to the book of Romans chapter 4, picking up where we left off last week. And as we've been in chapter 4, Paul has been zeroing in for us really on the life of Abraham, showing us how Abraham is the prime example of what Paul has been teaching, that, that we are justified, we are made right with God as a gift of God's grace through faith alone and not through any works of our own. And so last week we saw that the justification has never ever been because of any of our working, because of any work of, of righteousness or goodness that we have done. This week we're going to see that justification has never come through circumcision. It's never come through any religious ritual of any kind. He'll continue on, as we'll see next week, to show us that justification never came through the law. And so right standing with God has only, from the very beginning, come on one basis, and that is through faith alone. And so let's read together now in chapter 4, starting in verse 9, picking up where we left off last week. Hear the word of the Lord. Is this blessing, then, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this precious gift that you have given us through which we hear the voice of our God. We hear you speak. And your words are perfect, and your words are true, and your words are living. By your spirit working through your word, you even call to life that which is dead. So we pray this morning, Lord, that by your spirit you would give us sight, you would give us hearing, you would soften our hearts and even transform us into the likeness of our Savior. I pray for myself this morning as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every religion that's ever existed on this earth is offering a right relationship with whatever kind of God that they are espousing. Uh, they may not call it a God, but they're all aimed at getting their followers, their adherents, into a position where their God is going to be pleased with them rather than angry with them, where they're going to be granted whatever salvation might look like to them. Every, every religion is offering to accomplish this. Even our advertising is looking at this. Your, your functional hell is your terrible car that you're driving, but look what Audi's got to offer, salvation. Well, that's how religions work, too. They identify their God, they identify uh, their hell, they identify their salvation, and they offer you a path to get there. So why do so many devout Muslims and even some Roman Catholics around the world flagellate their backs with whips and rods until they're bloody and battered as a means of penance, as a means of self-discipline, seeking their God's forgiveness and thus his acceptance? 
Why do millions of Hindus every 12 years go to a festival which is believed to be the world's single largest religious event, and in this festival lay on beds of nails, walk across broken glass, lie down on red-hot coals, some stare into the sun until they go blind. The ceremony culminates with many of them taking a knife and slicing their tongue so that they will never speak clearly again for the rest of their lives. And the idea is that by doing so, they will purge their sins and receive residence in heaven. Why do so many make a pilgrimage to St. Joseph's Oratory in Montreal, the world's largest Roman Catholic, or the, the largest Roman Catholic cathedral in North America, and they climb on their knees up 280 steps to reach the cathedral at the top, which houses a shrine, and in that shrine are the bones of a priest. And their hope is that if we can touch these bones, we will earn salvation. Why do some churches in this community insist that their people wear or don't wear certain kinds of clothing? Resist modern conveniences and advancements like electricity and cars. Keep their facial hair a certain way. Why do all these people do all of these things? It's because people of all kinds of religious stripes feel the overwhelming sense that they have to do something. They have to do anything to get right with God. They have to do something to be justified, something to be forgiven, something to be accepted with their God. The natural man instinctively believes that he can somehow make himself right with God by the things that he does, by his own efforts. You know, what has Scripture shown us, even as we, we're only now hitting the fourth chapter of Romans, what have we seen repeatedly and, and clearly? How does a person become justified? How does one escape divine judgment and instead receive divine blessing? All religions are offering some formula, some means of making that happen. And what Paul has been showing us already is that none of them can do it. None of these things work. It's only the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that can do this. The only way a person can be made right with God is totally apart from any works that the person does and simply through faith, which Paul even says is a gift that God gives us. Even that's not something we are drumming up and generating. When a person places genuine faith in the person and work of Jesus, God credits to them Christ's own righteous status and forgiveness and salvation come as a free gift to them of his grace. And so the, the sinner who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ is declared righteous by God. That's the only way to get it, to be declared righteous by God. It's, a, it's illegal. You could call it a, a forensic, if you want to be really technical and theological sounding, forensic declaration that because the penalty was paid by Christ, that the judge is satisfied, that God himself, the, the Almighty, the Holy Judge, imputes or, or credits his righteousness to the account of the believing sinner. This justification, this transaction of righteousness is the very center of the gospel. It's the very center of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we saw last week, as Paul quotes David in verses 7 and 8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. 
whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This blessing is for those who receive as a gift God's own righteous status. And so now as Paul continues, as he has demonstrated this, the question is, can anyone receive this? Is this open to everyone? Or is this blessing only for a certain few people? What is it that we need to do if we are to receive this great blessing that David spoke of? Well, the Jews in Paul's day had an answer to that question. Is this for everyone? Can everyone receive such a blessing? What is it we must do to receive such a blessing? And their answer is this. Salvation belongs to the Jews. Of course, we see this repeated statement in Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But that had shifted. Salvation belongs to the Jews. The defining mark of Judaism was circumcision. And so we need to do a little background on circumcision before we can even make sense of all that Paul's saying here. So important. But for us, circumcision is not something uh, that we do for religious reasons. But to first century Jews, they see it as the most important ritual that they can do. They believed it guaranteed one's salvation from hell. In the book of Jubilees, we read, So absolute is circumcision as a mark of God's favor that if an Israelite had practiced idolatry, his circumcision must first be removed before he can go down to Gehenna or to hell. In other words, if you've been circumcised, here's how secure you are. Even if you're an idolater, even if you have abandoned the worship of the true God of Israel and you instead are worshiping pagan gods and idols, the only way if you are a circumcised Jew that you could possibly go to hell would be to ha- somehow have your circumcision undone, which is impossible. So circumcision guarantees salvation in the mind of the Jew. It, it was a ritual that, that was really the only thing required to keep you from hell. You didn't have to li- live a life of obedience. You didn't have to worship only the true God of Israel. No, you had to be circumcised. You had to go through this religious ritual. And Paul, as a Pharisee, used to believe this way. Before he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ and was converted, this is how he thought. Circumcision earns salvation. Well, now Paul warns strongly against that false belief, against that false gospel. And he he warns that all of these rituals do not accomplish salvation. In fact, if you are trusting in them for your salvation, They are preventing salvation. It's a very serious issue. If you recall, if you were were part of this church uh, three years ago or so as we went through the book of Galatians, we saw Paul talking about this over and over and over again. This was a central issue. But he says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 2, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So Galatia was a Gentile region. In other words, they were non-Jews. And Paul had taken the gospel there. Uh, people had believed, trusted in Christ, were converted. Churches has been, had been planted throughout that region. And after Paul left, in came a group called Judaizers. It was a group of people who considered themselves Christians, 
But what they were teaching was really a false gospel. They said, yes, it's faith in Christ that you need, absolutely, if you want to be saved. But you also need to add this. If you want to, to have true salvation, true justification with God, you've got to come through the Jewish door to get there. So you need to observe the things we observe. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow after our rituals. And so Paul comes with strong warnings and strong condemnation of that message that had been preached. And he warns the Galatians, as we just saw in chapter 5, verse 2, if that's the basis on which you receive circumcision, Christ is of no effect to you because you have accepted a perverted, damnable, false gospel You have mixed in grace with a salvation by works, and such a gospel cannot save. It only condemns. And so circumcision plays a huge role in Paul's teaching. He is constantly battling not just the non-believing Jews of his day that say to be circumcised, to be a Jew is, is what grants you salvation, and you all Gentiles, you're on the outside. But he's also battling these Judaizers who claim to be Christians, but are in fact preaching a false gospel. Now we may look at this and think, why is it so important for us to understand what's going on? Why is it so important for us to uh, talk about this? Is this really something that matters for our day? And I would say to you, this is a vital issue for our day. Not because we get into a lot of arguments about circumcision, I trust that we don't get into a lot of (laughs) arguments about circumcision, but because there are so many who claim the name of Christian for themselves, who are holding to a false gospel of a salvation based on some sort of ceremonial or ritual works. Here are our rites that we go through, and this is what saves us. Our world is full of this. Just this morning, immediately before the service, I got a text from someone that said, I'm in the midst of a discussion, an argument with someone right now who is insisting that one must be baptized in order to have salvation. Does the Bible have anything to say about this? And I just sent them the link to our YouTube page and said, yeah, watch this sermon in about 10 minutes. (laughs) This is a vital issue for us. In our community, one of these rituals that people hold to of a salvation based on on ceremony, a salvation based on rituals, one of the most prominent ones in our community, the most prominent ritual is called staying Amish. Right? Some of you have experienced this, have you not? Perhaps you grew up Amish and you haven't been Amish for 30 plus years, and every once in a while you still get the comments. There's a desperation. You have abandoned our ritual, and that is going to lead to your condemnation. And it doesn't really matter what you believe about Jesus. It doesn't really matter that the fruit of your life testifies that you've been living a life that honors him in submission to him. This ritual is required for salvation. Worldwide, the most obvious example is the Roman Catholic Church. And it's ceremonies and rituals, which are called the sacraments. We could spend the next 45 minutes just reading quotes. I've just got a couple I'll read for you. Uh, Direct quotes of Roman Catholic theology. Sacramental rites confer regeneration, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. 
Here's another one. For, for the dispensing of this grace, it is necessary that the minister accomplish the sacramental sign in the proper manner. In other words, they're saying, not only is this ritual necessary for your salvation, but it only works if the priest does everything in the right order. Here's another one. Neither orthodox belief, that is right belief, nor moral worthiness is necessary for the validity of the sacrament on the part of the recipient. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe and it doesn't matter how you live, just take part in our rituals and that'll get the job done for you. One of those sacraments, we'll just highlight one of them, baptism, infant baptism specifically when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church. Baptism, they say, confers the grace of justification. So Paul would say, how is one justified? It is only through, uh, by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church would say, how is one justified? Baptize them when they're a newborn. Say, baptism is necessary for all men without exception for salvation. If anyone denies that, an infant baptism, the, orig- the guilt of original sin is forgiven or even asserts that the whole of that which has the true and proper nature of sin, has not been taken away, let him be damned. Let him be anathema. So, so a damnation is pronounced on anyone who denies that infant baptism actually grants someone right standing with God and salvation. That would be us, by the way, condemned to damnation under that. Well, we hear this and we go, that's a blasphemous false gospel. At least I hope you say that. I hope you care enough about the truth to to feel that way when you hear those, to have something rise up in you that goes, this is what, no. So it's easy for us to look at at others and the way they do it and see so clearly that they're doing it. But we Protestant, we have plenty of rituals. We have plenty of these things. We should know better. We've got... Plenty of these. We who herald justification by faith alone have so many rituals that we have added on to the gospel that we are putting on other people. The most prominent one right now, you may or may not be well acquainted with this, is social justice that has been added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I could spend the whole morning reading, reading quotes to you from evangelical people, conservative, Christian, Bible-believing people who are making statements that essentially say, you are not a real Christian. You are at the very least not Christ-like unless you are devoting yourselves to these particular social justice issues that we have named. Now, it's not all of them. I I, I read one um, just this week from someone that I went to college with. She was in my class in college. She is a a darling of... uh, the university that I teach at. And she mocked the idea that we would be primarily concerned with something like abortion because of course it's easy to love those dead babies. But it's much harder to be in this race fight, isn't it? Much harder to be fighting for equity there. Listen, it's not, it's not about justice, which we should all be concerned with as Christians. It's about our specifically defined issues. You have to feel the same way we feel about them. You have to think our solution is the right solution. You have to get on board or you are not a real Christian. 
And the primary way that this is in the church right now has to do with the sin of racism, which we need to be very clear about. God hates. He despises. It is a, it is a shaking fist in God's face. Any form of ethnic vainglory, prejudice, bigotry, any form of sin, sinful partiality at all is wicked and it is sinful. The gospel demands that we reject it. The gospel demands that we renounce it. But that is not what the social justice movement is addressing. That's not what they're doing as they have infiltrated the church. They are promoting an ideology that is opposed to true gospel-centered reconciliation and harmony. The solutions that are being answered are offered are not gospel solutions. They're, they're solutions that, that come from atheistic worldviews, critical race theory, some of these things. And, and so here's the problem. The problem is the solutions that are being offered only lead to more prejudice. They only lead to more presumption as we look at our Christian brothers and sisters and assume the worst of them. They're actually demanding that we judge one another based on our skin color. Their solutions deny our union with Christ, and because of our union with Christ, our union with all believers. Make no mistake, friends, the version of this that has infiltrated the church, it is just another ritual. It presents for us a perverted false gospel. I am so tired of seeing people that I have admired and respected over the years who are now saying they don't really care about a host of sinful issues in a person's life as long as they line up with the team on this issue. It's disturbing. Another very common ritual in the evangelical church is an experience with the Holy Spirit. It's been added to the gospel. It's not just enough to believe the right things. It's not enough to believe the true gospel, to trust in Christ, to submit to him. No, you have to have this other thing on top of it. And if you don't, I really question. I really question if you're a Christian. In some circles, it's speaking in tongues. In Pentecostal circles, those who do not speak in tongues have not received the Holy Spirit. They are not saved. Some it's just other signs. D doing the miracles that Jesus did in the New Testament. If you're not doing those things, I question whether you're walking with Christ. In other circles who have been influenced by those more radical circles, just think you need to feel a certain way. Genuine belief in the true gospel is not enough. It needs to be accompanied by regular goosebumps or you have good reason to doubt your salvations. Friends, this is another gospel. So when Paul deals with the issue of circumcision, when he deals with the inability of any religious rite or ceremony to justify a person, he sweeps all of that away. All additions to the gospel are swept away. None are left. None can stand. It's not just that these things are ineffective to save a person. They are forbidden when they're approached this way. See, there's nothing wrong with circumcision. 
Paul even supported circumcision in certain instances where it was going to remove a roadblock to the gospel. But he says, if you get circumcised because you think that will give you better standing with God, it is condemnation to you. If you're putting your hope in any of these things, you've made Christ of no effect. You have trusted a false gospel. You've rejected the grace of God, and you have brought yourself under condemnation. That's why it's so serious to make additions to the gospel. Now, with that in mind, we can start our sermon. We have finished the introduction. I want to highlight just two important points that Paul makes here in this passage for us about justification, the blessing of justification, its relationship to ritual and ceremony. But the first is this, the blessing of justification is available to everyone. So, So whether you're circumcised, that is a Jew, or uncircumcised, that is a Gentile or a non Jew has absolutely no bearing on this blessing of justification. In our context, you could say, whether you have been a good, moral, religious person your entire life, or whether you have been a pagan from an unbelieving family for your entire life, anyone, everyone whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins. You don't have a better shot at it based on your family. So Paul starts by asking a question in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So, So Paul's point here is Abraham's justification was not a matter of religious ritual or rite or ceremony or tradition or practice. It was a matter of faith. The righteousness that Abraham had was not his own righteousness. It was, a, it was a righteousness that was counted to him, credited to him. A righteousness that he received from God. And so what Paul is trying to tell us is all people are saved exactly the same way Abraham was saved. Not by works of the flesh, not by religious rituals, but only through believing God, from receiving from him Christ's righteousness as a free gift of faith. So it's for everyone. Second then, Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. This transaction took place in Abraham's life before he ever went through this ritual of circumcision. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Can you imagine such a thing? 99. On the same day that Abraham was circumcised, Ishmael, his illegitimate son, was circumcised. He was 13. And so when God made the covenant with Abraham, God said this in Genesis 15, verse 6. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. So between the moment where his faith was counted to him as righteousness, where he was justified, where he was saved by God, transformed by God, converted from the pagan he had been into one who had been given God's righteousness, from that moment to the time of his circumcision as a 99-year-old man was a minimum of 14 years. Some say as many as 29 years. 
but it was at least 14 years there. And so when Abraham received the blessing of God's righteous status being credited to him as his, as his righteousness, when his sins were forgiven, when he was given the gift of eternal life, he was still an uncircumcised Gentile. There were no Jews yet. Abraham's the first. He, he's just an idolater who God decided to show mercy to. It wasn't because of anything he had done. His circumcision had absolutely nothing to do with his righteousness because it came many years beforehand. In fact, as we see Abraham and, and his illegitimate son Ishmael being circumcised on the exact same day, we see an amazing juxt juxtaposition that, that really dismantles any thought that circumcision could be the thing that saves because we see in Abraham one who was in covenant with God long before he was circumcised, and we see in Ishmael one who was circumcised but remained outside the covenant. Circumcision can't be the thing that puts one into covenantal relationship with God. So no ritual, no religious ceremony of any kind gives any righteousness to anyone ever. Abraham was righteous without circumcision. Ishmael was unrighteous with circumcision. So it didn't give the righteousness to Abraham. It didn't give righteousness to Abraham or to Ishmael, and it doesn't give righteousness to anyone else. Salvation comes through faith alone because of God's sovereign grace. Abraham didn't pick God even. He didn't know who God was. God just, in, in the, the mystery of his mercy, chose him, saved him, gave him faith, gave him righteousness, In Abraham, God is responding to the gift of faith that he gives. It's the same way for us. And he responds to that faith that he gives by crediting righteousness to the account of the believer, as we saw last week. And so, circumcision's purpose was never to save anyone. If that's the case, what was its purpose? Well, Paul goes on. Continue on in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So it's a sign and a seal. Circumcision was a, a sign. A, a sign is not the reality. It's just something that points to a greater reality. Charles Hodge said, what answers well as a sign is a miserable substitute for what is signified. In other words, think of it like this. If you're really hungry and you're driving down the highway and you see a sign for a restaurant and they have a beautiful display of food on that sign and it says 10 miles down the road, come, come eat with us. That sign does absolutely nothing to satisfy your hunger. There's only one thing that's going to do it, and that is that which the sign is pointing to. It's the reality of the restaurant that you need. It's the reality that the sign is pointing to that will satisfy you. In the same way, a wedding ring is not a marriage. A wedding ring only points to the reality of the marriage covenant. It reminds us of our ongoing responsibilities to one another within that covenant. And so circumcision is a sign pointing to God's covenant with Israel. Specifically, Paul says here, it's a, it's, a, it's a physical reminder 
that God had justified Abraham by faith alone. Abraham was to look at his circumcision and everyone who followed after him was to consider their circumcision and say, this is to remind me that God saved Father Abraham by faith alone, not through his works. It's not just a sign, it's a seal. Paul says here, it's a seal of the righteousness Abraham had by faith. What's a seal? A seal is proof that something is confirmed, something is authenticated, something is guaranteed. It confirms a truth or a reality of something else. And so Abraham's circumcision, which he received at 99 years of age, confirmed to him the righteous status that he had received from God many years earlier. It's a confirmation. And so circumcision has no independent value whatsoever, spiritually speaking. It's not a free ticket to heaven, as the Jews had maintained. It's not your guarantee of salvation. It is a confirming witness to the reality of justification by faith. But it does not produce or even contribute in any way to salvation. And so when we see the President of the United States, and he is... Let's say he's stepping off of Air Force One and he's got a jacket on and that jacket has the seal of the President of the United States on it. Is that what makes him president? The answer is, of, of, of course not. The seal doesn't make him president. It just confirms who he is. Nobody else is supposed to wear that jacket. And so if he, if he sets it down on the plane and a staff member quickly puts it on and then says, look, I call the shots now. That's not valid. The, the seal doesn't make him The president, that doesn't make them the president just because they put that seal on themselves. But if a staff member is arguing with the president in a disrespectful way, in a rude way, in an undermining way, he just might tap that seal on his chest and say, let's not forget who you're talking to right now. The seal is evidence of his authority as president. That's That's what a seal does. So Paul says the circumcision was to be a seal. It was to be an evidence to Abraham that he had been justified by faith. To all who came after him, baptism functions much the same way. It's a sign and a seal of a prior reality. The great reformer Martin Luther was plagued with doubts his whole life, plagued with depression his whole life, but particularly in his later years, His doubts and depression tempted him to question even his own faith. Question whether the Protestant Reformation had accomplished anything. Question whether God loved him and would welcome him into his presence one day. And when those doubts came to him, one after another after another, Luther would write, Baptizitus sum, I have been baptized. That was, his, that was his response to those doubts when his faith was being questioned by his own depression, by his own doubts, certainly by the harassment of the evil one. And he wasn't trusting in his baptism to save him when he did that. He was looking at it as a sign and a seal of his salvation. L- Luther was telling himself when those doubts came, I belong to Jesus Christ and that's why I was baptized. 
So the thought of his baptism confirmed and assured him of his prior salvation by grace through faith. That's how it works. So what was God's purpose in giving a sign and a seal, particularly of circumcision here to Abraham? He goes on in verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what we have been given is a circumcision that is even better than Abraham's. Abraham's circumcision was pointing to a spiritual reality, and that is what we've become recipients of. Paul says in Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here's what we have been recipients of. That which Abraham's circumcision was pointing to. It's not a matter now of ethnic heritage. It's not a matter of physical circumcision or any other right. All who have come to God by means of faith in Christ, all who receive from him his own perfect righteousness, are the spiritual sons of Abraham. That's what Paul's saying here. In other words, we are God's covenant people. We are God's covenant people. Those who have been circumcised and those who haven't, all who trust in Christ are now God's covenant people. And what is our seal? Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so circumcision did not save, but it signified that God would save. He would circumcise the heart. He would grant righteousness, just as he did for Abraham. In the same way, the Lord's Supper doesn't save, but it declares that God will save those who repent and believe because of Christ's work on the cross. Baptism doesn't save, but it declares that he will save the one who puts his faith in Jesus and is therefore united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So it's faith then and not ritual that saves. It's faith and not ritual that makes people right with God. And Paul's point is, it's always been this way. This is how it has always been. It all started with Abraham. So he's the father of all believers is what Paul says here. What does that mean? In what sense is he our father? Well, Paul says here, he is our father because we must walk in the footsteps of the faith that he had. That's what makes him our father. He came by faith, and we too must come by faith. And so Paul's point is, it's not just the Jews who are the descendants of Abraham. In other words, There's there's no believer who is any more chosen by God than any other believer. You see this in Christian circles sometimes. It's it's kind of popular in our own community as well. All things Jewish feel a little more spiritual than those that aren't. So we, you know, we don't talk about Jesus the Christ. We call him Messiah, and we 
we try to use Jewish pronunciations of words, and we feel that somehow we're being a little bit more spiritual. Look, no believer is any more chosen by God than any other believer. That's what Paul's saying. We are Abraham's descendants. We are the covenant people of God if we have trusted in Christ. There's not one way for the Jew and another for the Gentile because faith is the determining criteria for salvation, not genealogy, not circumcision. You might be thinking as we have gone through this, look, we get it. We understand. Why are we going over this over and over? Why do, why do we have to say it so many times in so many different ways? It's not that hard a concept. The truth is, even though most of us probably don't have a problem believing this, we might even look at the Amish. We might even look at the Roman Catholic Church and wonder how they could pervert the gospel in the ways that they do. But we are still often tempted to think that the things that we do or don't do will change the way God feels about us or change the way he'll deal with us. We're still tempted to think when we sin that we've got to work it off somehow. We're still tempted to think if we can string together a couple days or a couple weeks or a couple months of more righteous living that that must mean blessings going to come to us. But the, Rome, the, the message of Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, is that we cannot do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God. We can't do anything to make ourselves more acceptable to God, to, to add to it. All, all we can do is believe God. All we can do is trust him. To trust him to make us as acceptable to him as we ever could be, as we ever will be. It's the righteousness of Christ that makes us acceptable to God. We cannot improve on that. You cannot improve on infinite perfection. And when the believer sins, he's unable to detract from infinite perfection. In all the ways we think we can do either one of these things, we're believing the exact same false gospel that we see in all these other religions. The very thing Paul's warring against right here. That's why we need to hear this over and over again. That's why we need to hear the true gospel over and over and over again. The, the truth is, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are as acceptable to God right now as you ever will be. You can never be less acceptable or more acceptable than you are right now. Why? Why is that? It doesn't feel right to us. It doesn't feel natural to us. Why is it? It's because of your union with Christ. Because you've been united with him. Because you've been given his righteousness. So you are as absolutely perfectly, completely acceptable to a holy God as Jesus is. Our faith in Christ needs nothing else to be added to it to make it complete. In fact, any attempts to add anything to it as a means of salvation is a perverted, damnable, false gospel. Now, does this mean we can just go on living lives of sin unrepentantly, 
doing whatever it is that we want, rebelling against God, and all is well because he's as happy with me as he could ever be. No, it may well be that your life is giving testimony that you have never trusted in Christ, that you've not received from him his righteousness because this righteousness transforms. It creates a, a new person, a new heart, a new mind. As Paul says, examine yourselves and see if you're in the faith. If your life is marked by sin, it could well be that God is not pleased with you in any way because you've not received from him the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ will transform your life. You will live differently. But Christian, you will still sin. Your sin will, will grieve you. But your sin will not change your standing with God. Not one little bit. Because of your union with Christ. Oh, how we need to remind ourselves of that. What, could, what better thing could be true of us than that? So what's the most important thing we could take away as we close here from this text? It's that we are saved by a gift of God's grace alone to be received through the only the only instrument that could receive it, and that is faith. Faith in Christ's perfect life. Faith in Christ's atoning death. Faith in his glorious resurrection. As the Holy Spirit of God empowers us to repent and believe and live lives of faithfulness. But the very moment we start trying to add anything of our own to that, to that gospel, any ritual, any work. We begin trusting not in him, but in us. Our faith is shifted from, from Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who lived and died and rose and rules and reigns and is returning for us, and it shifts onto us. My ability to manage my sin. We've set God's grace aside. We're actually contradicting the Spirit's work in our lives. Although we would trust him alone. I'll close with this quote from John Stott. The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. It's not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. This, this is the gospel. It offers union with Christ and all of the eternal, glorious benefit that comes with it. What more could we ever ask for? What more could we hope in? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, thank you for the glories of this gospel that you would offer to sinners, to rebels, salvation. As we see in the life of Abraham, a man who was not seeking you, a man who worshipped other gods, and yet you condescended to him to reveal yourself to him, to give to him the gift of faith that he would trust in you, and then in response to the faith that you gave, you gave to him your own perfect righteousness. And Lord, so it is with us, we who are undeserving, we who were not seeking you were sought out by you. We who were undeserving and unrighteous were given righteousness because of Christ. We who were faithless were given faith. 
We who were rebellious were given the gift of repentance. Lord, we could go on and on listing the benefits, and that's just the ones we know about that you've given to us. We rejoice in you. We rejoice in your gospel. Lord, make us faithful to live our lives in such a way that show forth the goodness and faithfulness of our God. I do, Lord, pray for my friends, any that are here that don't know you. Lord, perhaps they're like those that Paul is addressing who have trusted in in some salvation that's not true salvation and they stand condemned, but they're self-deceived and don't know it. I pray in your mercy, Lord, that you would remove the veil from their eyes, even now in this moment by your spirit. Cause them to see themselves rightly, to see your holiness, to see their sin for what it is, and to see Jesus Christ as we sang this morning, condemned upon the tree in the place of sinners. Pray, Lord, that you would cause all who hear my voice to trust in you and receive from you your perfect righteousness and eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Make us bold in proclaiming it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.